You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips on making in the UK. So let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode number 197 of the Make It British podcast. London-based designer Maria Gratchvogel is renowned for her clever use of cutting to flatter the female figure. In this interview, she talks about why she has chosen to use more UK manufacturers for her collection and the importance of quality and buying less. Enjoy this interview from the Make It British podcast archives. Maria is half Polish and for many years her clothing was made in a factory in Poland. But for the last few years she has started bringing her production back to the UK. So in this interview she talks to me about why she's chosen to use more UK manufacturers for her collection and how changing her business model has helped her to build closer relationships with her clients. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Maria. Here we go. Maria, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be here. So we first met at an ASBCI conference where you were talking to a group of students. And I remember them all being really inspired by your story. Do you want to tell everyone listening to this podcast um, a little bit of that background, which I thought was, which they all thought was so inspiring? Oh, bless you. Yes, of course. I mean, for me, the lo- I wanted to be a designer for the longest time. Um, so I think from about the age of seven or eight, I was um, sketching, drawing, saying, when I grow up, I'm going to be a fashion designer. Um, I had no clue really what that meant. Um, but my mum kept saying, you know, you're going to have to learn how to sew. So um, that was kind of my next thing. Probably about 10 or 11, I started learning how to cut and sew things. Um, firstly, very simple things for myself and my friends. Um, and that was also a way of me earning a bit of extra pocket money at the time. I remember selling various things to various people. Um And then I think around age 12, 13, 14, you know, that moment where you sort of, you're going through that kind of adolescence bit. Um, Yeah. All adolescent girls, I would say, I was very conscious of my body. And I started to develop a really particular interest in how cut and fit could essentially transform the way you look and the way you therefore feel about yourself. And I became really conscious of the power of clothes to, to make you just feel good. The right garment can suddenly make you look good and therefore you project a sort of air of confidence. And, you know, I think, especially at that time, I remember feeling, you know, my hips are so big and, you know, you feel, I mean, I look back and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm probably, too, was probably two stone lighter than I am now. And I thought I was fat, but, um, But it's all in your head. And the important part is actually the ability to use what you wear to make yourself feel joyful and happy and feel good about yourself. And so I I sort of invested a huge amount of time in learning how to cut and fit to a woman's body to make her feel really good about herself. So there's so much investment that's gone in over the years 
um, on lots of on myself, obviously, and also lots of different women with lots of different body shapes. And and I guess that's how it started. It started from from there and a, and a very different point of view on what fashion should do. It's not just about a look, but it's also about creating pieces that just genuinely make you feel amazing. That's amazing that you understood cutting even at the age of 14, because I remember being into sewing when I was that age as well. But the whole pattern cutting side for me was was a complete mystery. I could never get it right. So you've carried that through your whole business all the way along. That's that's just incredible. Yeah, it's always been for me, it's the fundamental part of a garment. And, you know, I Mm. suppose over the years, I've sort of it's always confused me this whole thing of ooh, get the look when you see all this thing in the magazines of look, here's the designer thing and then here's the get the look. And you're like, actually, the truth is nobody's really valuing the cut of a garment. But actually yeah. so much goes into that process of cut, fit, getting it right so that, you know, when you the difference between something, you have two garments that look great, right, and you can get the look from these garments, you can put it on a model, both of those garments are going to look fantastic. Put it on an ordinary woman, you can bet your bottom dollar that they both yeah. look fantastic. <laughs> that is so true. That is so true. And I think that also um, means that when you do have that garment that fits very well, you're, you'll look after it more. You're willing to pay more for it because it makes you feel incredible as well. And you get more, therefore, get a lot more wear out of it because because it does make you feel special. Yeah, well, I think that's the thing that I'm most proud of in what I do is, you know, I mean, obviously I've been in business quite a long time now, almost 30 years, can you believe it? Um, (laughs) And, you know, what I found is actually the longer I've been in business, the more and more of this occurs. I get clients coming back to me with things that they bought 10, 15, and I've even had 20 years before wanting something fixed because it's their favorite thing and it makes them feel so good. And there's a huge sense of pride that this has become one of their most treasured pieces. You know, it means it's really been loved and worn. So the, you know, yes, my clothes are expensive, but it does mean that the investment in that piece, if you consider it as a cost per wear, is actually very good value. Yeah, exactly. So when you first set up your business then, did did you make the clothes yourself or did you have a manufacturer that you worked with? I would imagine back then when you set up in the, I'm trying to do the maths now, the early 90s, <laughs> yes. um, everything was made in the UK. Yes, it was. Um, and back then, it was very difficult to get manufacturing in the UK um, because there was this whole thing about quantity. So there was a handful of manufacturers that were willing to do small runs of things. But goodness, I had so many different issues. I mean, more than you can, can even imagine. And, and quite, quite honestly, thankfully, I can cut, sew, make a garment because there were a number of, you know, right at the beginning, I didn't have a lot of orders. But those that I took and then I gave to a manufacturer, quite often it was like, oh, it's supposed to be delivered on Tuesday And I'd go, say, on the Monday to go and pick it up, having promised it to a shop by the, you know, Friday or something. And it wasn't even cut. Oh, you know, is that 
Is that because it, they were prioritising the much, much bigger orders? Because yes. back in the days, all the yes. big retailers were still making them. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I said it was much more difficult. It's much more competitive. We would, you know, if you were a small designer back then, you were just small fry. Mm. And quite frankly, they didn't really care. Um, yeah. So they were sort of doing you a favour a little bit by manufacturing for you. And I had a mixture of different issues. I had things like that where they didn't deliver at all. Um, sometimes where the quality of the sample was lovely, but when they did the production, it was dreadful. Um, so, you know, and then you had to do loads of fixing and alterations to things. And, you know, to be honest, back then, I'd sort of a little bit kind of was a bit disappointed by the Made in UK thing. And that was, you know, it was yeah. a long time ago, but I remember it being very difficult. Um, well, I had a brand at the same sort of time as you because I graduated in 91 and set up set up my own, my own label. And we actually had our own factory. So we employed workers. It was much easier to find the workers in those days. Right. And then I remember when we got to a certain size, trying to find a manufacturer in London and had exactly the same issue. Uh, they were all still making for all the high street stores. Yes. Yeah. So and they treated you uh, like yeah, nothing, like you say, small fry. Yeah, <laughs> That's exactly. So unimportant. So. Yeah. So I'd like to think things have changed now. Oh, massively! Um, My goodness, massively changed now. Hmm. It's come full circle. Um, I would say it's come completely full circle, and I think that's to do with the whole supply and demand thing. And you know, I, I, it's you know, I've been observing this over the years, and what seems to have happened is as people, you know, originally it was designers that went to places like Italy or overseas in order to be treated in a certain way, exactly what Mm. we discussed. But I think then as more and more of the high street left the UK based on price, um, there became more of an opportunity then to bring manufacturing for quality items back into the UK. Um, I think it took quite a while for the UK to be able to get there but there's now some fantastic manufacturers and have been for around I would say about 10 years we've been um we've been sort of working with various UK manufacturers and the you know the quality now is where it needs to be to be able to make a designer product um which is great. Brilliant. Well, that's really good to hear. Yeah, exactly. So you when so when you first started out, you tried working with the manufacturers in the UK, and then you took some of your production what, to Italy, was it, or Portugal? Well, actually, um, I am half Polish, and somebody basically set up a factory for me over in Poland because the quality of the the making over there is really high. So it was kind of a bit of a partnership. Um, which was for the longest time. And they, so we worked together, um, I want to say it was around 95. um, And we've only just transitioned to be fully back in the UK. So we've been working with them for all of this time. Um, And it's been in the last, I want to say, four, five years, we've been more sort of seriously testing factories over here um, Mm. in order to sort of make that transition. But um, we, I kind of did that primarily at the time because I was finding it so difficult to get reliable manufacturing. Um, so, you know, but everything sort of moves and changes. And it was time now to bring it back here for, for many reasons. And have there been certain pieces? So you're known for the, your, your cut and particularly for your trousers. 
have those been the sort of pieces you've been able to bring back to the UK or have some of them been more of a challenge? Um, so far, I mean, basically what, what we've set up or the infrastructure I've set up at the moment, because what, what we've had the ability to do with that particular manufacturer is to be able to make anything at all with essentially very short notice to be able to turn it around because they were doing everything for us. And that was quite hard to be able to replicate that over here. Um, so what mm. I've set up now is I have really good machinists who can do all of those customer orders. So that's all made very locally. And we can, again, fulfill that very short lead time. And we have other, a set of other manufacturers that are able to do some of the other pieces. Um, the most challenging is our artwork print, I would say. Because the way that I choose to do my prints, instead of printing a piece of fabric, we are essentially, I'm designing the print in 3D around the pattern shapes. So all of those things are printed, only the fabric that you actually need. So the cutting of those pieces has to be done individually. It can't be done in any kind of multi-laying, if that makes sense. So very labour intensive. It's very labour intensive. The, so you're almost making a, a sample every single yeah, time. Absolutely. Sure, yeah, exactly. So, you know, our small manufacturer has always been able to do those for us. We That's going to be the biggest challenge for us. But to be honest with you, we've always limited the production of those um, to very small numbers because it was such a labour-intensive process. We tried once to do larger larger numbers of them and it's impossible. So it, it makes our artwork prints also much more special because people know there's not going to be very many of them floating around around the world, you know, because hmm. they are by nature pieces of art. Do you think technology, though, going forward will be able to help that process? I'm imagining... I was speaking to someone the other day where they have a, they can do print on demand, which will also cut at the same time. So I could imagine with the way technology is moving forward with things like printing, that that may solve your problem for you at some point in the future. Well, you know, I think that works very, very well when you're making T-shirts or um, let's say items that don't require the same level of precision. One of the, the mm. difficulties that we have with the printing in this particular way, for example, is that everything has to be very precise and on grain. You've also got fabric shrinkage to take into account. And every garment that's printed is also, you know, that, that goes through a certain sort of process. Um, and if it's not very precise, then the print doesn't match you know, and of course you can cut along the lines. Of course you can absolutely do that and it can be cut at the same time. But if that grain is off, it doesn't make yeah, up right. The fit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That Then you lose what you're all absolutely. about, which is your fit. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So it's fine yeah. for, let's call it looser fitting garments, but anything with any degree of precision, it would be very difficult to do it that way. Um, it's not that we haven't tried. We, we absolutely have tried to do that. Um, so I, I know I know very clearly what the limitations are. We've been we've been doing that kind of printing since two thousand and four. I want to say. Um, mm. So I know very clearly what the limitations are with that. Um, and we do have we're, we're also looking at a new printer um, for that, which is is a pigment based printing. 
um, which actually uses even less water, which is amazing. So, oh, um, you know, it's now not just using the ink for the pattern pieces and the rest is white space. So you're kind of preserving ink and less dye in the whole processing of it. And because we do small numbers, we're printing only what we need. We're taking it one step further and trying to reduce the water consumption within the printing process as our, let's mm. say, next step along that Brilliant. journey. But, um, so moving your production more locally, was that also a sustainability choice? Yes, it was. It was very mm. much that choice. I think, you know, I think I've become, goodness, I mean, it was about sort of 2014 or thereabouts. Um, I, I started to realise that the current business model for fashion just doesn't make sense anymore. Um, and I think it's beginning to become apparent now with, you know, you see a, a lot of this conversation beginning to happen. You've seen that the BFC and the CFDA have announced that, you know, we're going to try and get back to two collections a year. And I'm like, hey, hey, you know, I've been saying it for like <laughs> the longest time. Um, mm. Because I think what happened is as fast fashion became more relevant and you started seeing, you know, we all had it. You put your things out on the catwalk. The internet would then have your collection around the world in a matter of seconds. And all these fast fashion people will be able to copy your design and have it in the shops before you could even have it in the shops. Yeah, right? it's crazy, isn't it? Um, yeah. And that's just been in the last few years that that's happened. Yeah, well, more than that, actually. Mm. I mean, you you'd sort of, I mean, certainly my last show was spring, summer 2014, and it was relevant then. Um, mm. And I was starting to see, you know, the demands for pre-collections and we need you to do extra collections from the department store. So I tried it. I did try to do a third collection. But what I found is, number one, creatively, it was very difficult to push yourself at that level because when, when the, the investment into the cut fit and that whole development of a collection and the investment that goes into that for each collection is so, such a lot, when you're trying to mm. add a third one in the mix... You never get a gap in the year. Exhausting. And without the gap, without the space, you're always working at full pace. Yeah. And no time to creatively to kind Just of step, step back, back and, and think. Yeah. Mm. And people have sort of forgotten the importance of being slow, the importance of just sometimes doing nothing in order to come up with something. And I think, you know, actually, I think that's one of the great things that's happened with um, this lockdown and with COVID is we've all started was, to yeah. appreciate time again. Time, mm, I was just nature, say that. Yeah. beauty, things that perhaps we'd forgotten about in busy, busy, busyness, you know. Um, and I think it factors into the fast fashion thing, you know, going back to what I was saying, the business model had really shifted and I... I tested doing this three collections a year and I was like, this doesn't really work. And also financially it didn't work because it's another set of photos, um, another set yeah. of investment into a, a collection. And really the uplift in sales didn't really warrant it, I would say. And I just decided I wasn't going to do it anymore. And so consequently pulled out of department stores. <laughs> Most people were like, are you mad? <laughs> yeah, and and has the, how's that changed your business by doing that? Smaller. 
um, mm. but more profitable. So it's kind of weird in a way. It's smaller. I mean, you know, the, the thing is, I didn't, the one thing I haven't really cracked yet is how to market that. I think partly mm. because the time wasn't really right. People didn't really understand the idea of having something smaller and more, um, I don't know, you know, people, I, I don't think people could really understand why you would want to do that. But for me, it was about centering back to the core of why I started the business, which was I love to do what I love to do. I like to make things that make women feel gorgeous. I love to have actually relationships with not only individual women that enjoy the clothes, but, you know, we still sell to some owner-managed boutiques, some smaller um, boutiques that have a really strong relationship with their client, understand what I do, love what I do, and it becomes more of a partnership, um, mm. which is, I, f- I feel, that that's what it should be about. Everything should be about, you know, clothing should really be about bringing you joy. And the pieces in your wardrobe should make you feel good. Um, so... I think if we can go back in some ways before moving forward to a time where we invested a bit more in each piece that we bought, it meant a little bit more to us. Therefore, we kept it a little bit longer. We repaired it more. I think we'd solve the sustainability issues, actually. Yeah, so so do I. I mean, that's so true. And I would imagine now that you're not selling to all these department stores, so you're not wholesaling so much. So it actually gives you more margin because they were taking a huge chunk of the the price at the beginning. It meant that it means that you are able to work with those manufacturers that can make the smaller quantities that are, are based locally, because you're passing more of that craftsmanship onto the customer rather than the retailer taking half yeah that's true I mean you know Mm. obviously you know you you pay more to make smaller runs you pay more to make one than you would to make 10 you make pay more to make 10 than you would to make 50 I mean that's just the maths of making garments and I think that's where in some ways we've all got a bit lost because in chasing a cheaper price um we're saying, right, well, if we make 100, we'll get a better price. But actually, can we really sell 100? And exactly, what happens to yeah. that excess? Yeah, we load it off, load it to, I don't know, Outnet or somewhere like that. But mm. what does that then do to the brand to see your product at a reduced price? How does that make your luxury full price customer feel when they've just spent full price on it? Um, mm. And, you know, it, I became very cognizant of, you know, I, do, I, I have a shop in Singapore also, and my clients there, I would, go out, I would go out twice a year to do a trunk show, which sadly I haven't been able to do this uh, no. spring. Um, but usually I would take out my future collection and I pre-order with my customers. And I started to realize that actually my clients don't care at all when they get it. They just love it. And they want that piece. And it doesn't matter if it takes six months. I mean, you know, I have somebody, I did the trunk show in, um, when did I go? It was November, I think. And uh, she said, oh, no, it's fine. I'll pick it up when I'm next in London. When are you next in London? Oh, April, roughly. And obviously she hasn't come to London. But there's no, 
you know, they don't mind. No rush. There's no rush. Yeah. She just wanted that piece. She loves that piece. It makes her feel good. She knows she's going to wear it for a long time. So it's not about seasons and it's not about now. It's not about throwaway fashion at all. So I think, you know, I think it's, you know, my brand's always been a little bit like that. Um, but I think just generally speaking, if we could bring designer product back to that layer of luxury that, you know, it, we, I don't think we need as much. You know, we, we, no, yeah. we all wear 20% of our wardrobe anyway. Let's hone in on that 20%. Find out those beautiful pieces that we love and why we love them. And before we buy anything at all, say, does it fit in that 20%? And if mm. it doesn't, don't buy it. And guess what? You've yeah. then got more money to spend on something really beautiful that's going to last you a lot longer and give you more pleasure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think lockdown, like you say, has taught people to to do things a lot slower. But also it means we haven't all needed so many more clothes. There hasn't been that, oh, my, I'm going out, so I need to buy something new. And I think hopefully for the younger generation who are have been very absorbed recently in, you know, how many items can I buy? And like the whole fast fashion scene, I hope it's given them time to think as well. And that there isn't this huge churn in fashion and this, I must buy more. And it is more about quality rather than quantity going forward. I do hope so. I really do hope so. Um, Cause I, I, I honestly think that that's the key. Um, mm. I think, you know, it's the key across many different things actually. Um, and I've, I've been sort of very, I've thought about that a lot for a long time across food, across uh, beauty, across furniture, even. You know, if you mm. look at the way furniture used to be made and how long it lasted, yeah. the way it's made yeah. now and how mm. quickly it falls apart, you can draw yeah. parallels to that with fashion. And I think the truth mm. of it is it's very price driven and people have tried to make things cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And to make something cheaper, you are going to lose quality. You are going course, to lose quality yeah. of fabric that becomes cheaper because, well, it looks good, but it's not going to last quite the same way. Um, mm. Quality of manufacturing, taking some shortcuts that give you the same look, but without the thought process that goes into that whole you know, the garment tech part, how something's finished, mm. the way that you finish a corner or a seam can be the difference between it, you know, how it wears when you're actually wearing it. And those aspects of a garment are, well, I think they're very important and slowly being a little bit forgotten, actually, in the rush to make something cheaper. Yeah. I mean, you certainly notice it when you go to a charity shop I mean, and you pick up an old a vintage garment from a charity, an old Marks and Spencer's St. Michael brand. Yes. I mean, I've got quite a few blouses I bought in charity shops that are 1970s M&S. Oh, wow. where, and the quality of the fabric is it's just thicker. It's, you know, it's silk. Whereas nowadays you go in M&S and the quality, you can feel the difference in the cloth. And like you say, that makes a, a big difference. And it you even, you know, it's just such a, we've moved away. People have gradually forgotten what a good, what a fabric feels yes. like what a good seam looks yes. like and you don't have to be trained in fashion I don't think to feel the difference but people have 
having and just not used to that so much no, anymore. They're not. It's, I mean, it's become yeah. standard, and you know, it's mm. quite interesting because you know, in as uh, one of the things that I always, I was always felt, you know, quite. Um, I want to say actually uplifted by when I first went to Singapore and I did my very first trunk show there, uh, which was organized by one of my best girlfriends who lives there. And she's like, you must come to Singapore. They'll love your clothes. And, and so I went and they all took a look at me and they were like, you're about six foot tall. Everything's going to look great on you. And we're all about five foot tall and it's all not going to look the same. And I'd say, look, just try it on, just try it on. And they would put on the clothes and, pretty much with that exception, oh, wow, actually, this is really good. And then they would start noticing things like, oh, and you know, it's really nicely made. And nobody <laughs> in the UK would ever say that, by the way. Nobody. I never heard a client look at any of my garments in a showroom in London <laughs> and say, oh, look <laughs> at the seam. I love the way you finished that dart. Nobody would mm. notice but somehow they noticed that in Singapore and that made yeah. me very happy. <laughs> so why have we lost that then in the UK? Is it because they don't teach sewing in school so much so people don't don't have a, that appreciation? Why have we lost it but Singapore still has that? And it was, it, Italy does as well. I mean, the Italians, they understand a well-made garment, don't they? Yes, you know, I actually don't, re- I don't really know. I think the Asia thing comes from, I mean, certainly there's been, you know, certain, maybe because there's a lot of manufacturing that occurs out in Asia and that's, of a, let's say, of a certain type mostly. So they, mm. learn, they have learned to discern between something that's beautifully made or not beautifully made. That, that's my feeling from, what, from the conversations I've had with people. Over here... I think it's down to um, that whole valuing of something. And I think it's because over the years we've been taught to by, you know, by seeing this whole get the look, you can get it cheaper, you can get it cheaper. And it's been valued as how cheap can we buy it? Yeah. The conversations that you, you get over here are things like, I bought it for £30 from wherever. Oh, They're yeah. proud of that. Yeah. Whereas... I got ten. I got ten T-shirts for a fiver. Yeah, yeah it's it's driven by the magazines, it's isn't driven it? Do you think here? And it's mm. driven, you know, it's driven also by peer pressure because people, you know, there's been a whole conversation from the consumer going, "Hey, look what I got! Look at the bargain I got!" Um, and I think it's around, you know, this is why I said actually, I think the education around what goes into a quality garment, you know, the the training, the thought, the care, the love, the, you know, even that whole question we talked about, yes, you can make it more efficient by printing and cutting, but actually you can't really do that at a level of precision that's required to make something Mm. really beautifully. You know, it's very hard to control the grain on an automatic cutting like that, that's automatic printing. So how do we communicate that? How do we change people's perceptions? I think it's about building awareness of what goes into a quality garment. I think it's also um, 
maybe also for people to understand how long it takes to make a garment and just give it a little bit yeah. of thought to the fact that, mm. you know, if something's £25 and our minimum wage is, what is it, around £9 now, something like that, yep. mm. um, just think about it for a minute. And you've got 20% yeah. VAT. Uh, <laughs> how many hours does, do, do people think it takes to make a garment, you know? And there's a sort of, there's an education, I think, that needs to happen at a certain level to consumers directly around how much a beautiful garment should cost. And of course you can get a cheaper product, but what do you lose within that? Um, And who's making it? And what are they being Mm. paid and what yeah. kind of quality fabric are we being are we using for that? And like the awareness of actually, you know, a lot of these cheaper products, they might last five or six wears. So mm. by investing in something that's beautifully made and being able to recognize the quality, because not it's not just about price, up. Something very beautiful, very expensive may or may not be beautifully made. It's about recognizing what makes a quality garment. How, how you can recognize something that will last you for 10 years if you buy it. And so by investing that money, you've got something that is going to be the same cost per wear, actually, as the thing you spent much less money on that you threw away mm. after three or four wears because it fell apart. Yeah, exactly. Cost per wear. That comes up quite a lot on this podcast. So many you know, people that I speak to, it, it is, you know, it's, it's so true. If you've got something that's made to last, it lasts a you know it lasts a lot longer. It costs you a lot less. You're, it's basic math. Isn't it's it? basic math. Um, but you know, yeah. I think also we've got into the habit of saying you know. I mean, I don't know what what people spend on clothes, but you know, I would say that some of my clients that if you added up what they spend over a year on clothes would actually be probably spending less than the people that are buying lots and lots and lots of things at a lower price because they're only buying a couple of items a year. They're building Mm. into their wardrobe. Oh, that's Mm. a beautiful blouse. And that'll go back with these trousers I bought last season. We've designed our collection like that for years now. Um, My clients don't necessarily buy something every season, but when they do buy something, they treasure it. And I believe Mm. that that's how fashion should be. I think that is a much, much more sustainable approach to fashion. But it does require a consumer to, you know, be more mindful about what they're purchasing. And that in itself will will drive the economy because economics works on supply and demand. If there's not enough demand for it, the supply, the supply chain will change. Mm. So going back to... Uh, Right to the beginning, when we talked about your presentation that you did to the students, that I think that is where a lot of the education is not just about the consumers. It is also about how do we educate the fashion designers of the future that it is about this long lasting, well made. I mean, I still get designers contacting us at Make It British who are saying, I need to find someone that can make me a dress for, you know, under a 10. I need to find a cheap manufacturer. And I had the same conversations with them about how long do you think that takes to make? And do you know what the minimum wage is in this country? Um, How do we educate the designers of the future 
to make them appreciate this and and work in a new way you know what i think again it goes back to that same thing and that same argument of the the luxury designers have been forced a little bit by the fast fashion to try and make their things cheaper so fashion has become too cheap actually generally speaking so I've observed, even in my own businesses, and this is where I couldn't make it work anymore. I couldn't make it work financially because, you know, to wholesale my garments at the price that I needed to wholesale them, nobody would buy them. It didn't make mm. sense because I, of the investment that I put into each garment, the fabrics that I choose to use, the way that we cut and the finishes that I require in terms of making that garment a really beautiful garment, then you need to sell it at a certain price. But truthfully, Mm. to do that, it's very hard to do that. So the only way to do that is to become of a more retail-only model. Otherwise, it doesn't make Mm. sense. And I think that for, for it to change, answering your question, actually pricing probably has to change. And I think that's the conversation nobody really wants to have. But clothing does need to become a little bit more expensive. But I believe that by doing so and by educating people in the value of something beautiful, we'll be making less, creating less landfill and creating more joy and value out of fashion and the clothing purchases that we make. Brilliant, Maria. That is a fantastic line to end on. That is that is words so well said. That was that is beautiful what you just said. That's so true. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining me today. I'll let you get back to your studio to creating your beautiful products. Thank you. What's next? What's next for your brand now that you've reopened the studio? Where are you going next? Well, we're I'm always trying to push things a little bit more. So we're trying to get um we've been trying for the longest time to get as close to zero waste as possible. Um, And so one of the things I'm experimenting with now is even with the, um, even with our sort of special orders, being able to cut those without using even a paper pattern. So, um, you know, I mean, obviously electronic cutting has been around for a long time and we've used it for sort of say, let's say larger production. Um, but we're now moving to a place where we're going to try and um, utilise that so that we have much less paper waste, basically. We've, we've done mm. digital patterns since 2001 in order to minimise the amount of paper that we're using, you know, and the amount of couriers that we use. So we can be as kind of clean as possible across the su- supply chain in terms of shipping things back and forth. Um, and um, so I'm, I'm experimenting with the idea of going completely paperless with our um, with our cutting, which is which is quite exciting. Um, and then the next Brilliant. stage is also to try. Um, we've been working a lot with kind of virtual fitting to try and be a little bit more um, digital in that sense. Um, you'll have to wait for the next next podcast for that one. But, um, yeah brilliant that's exciting yeah there is Digital some fitting. exciting things we've been working on the last couple of years with the technology partner for that um and that's going to that i think that will be really really exciting it will really minimize um 
really minimize the amount of garments being produced, essentially. It's, it's, it's a very powerful tool, not just for our business, where um, at this point we're quite small, but also I think it could be something for, for other businesses to, to incorporate if that works. Excellent. So watch this space on watch that one. Space, yes. and, and if anyone wants to find you and find your beautiful clothes to buy, where's the best place to go to? Well, I guess look at our website first and foremost. Um, not everything's on there, of course. We can't photograph everything. Um, uh, and or we come and see our, our beautiful showroom. Uh, it's a, a very beautiful and very private space. Um, and we're quite lucky in that regard, actually, because... Um, we're able to sort of follow various protocols in, in terms of keeping it a safe place. It's uh, nice and airy and roomy and we can do the whole having only one person in at a time and all the sanitizing procedures and things in place. So the new normal, the for new shopping. normal for shopping. Yeah. So I feel quite lucky in that respect because it's like an old fashioned atelier. People come, we serve them, we pull out all the pieces that they love. There's no obligation to buy anything. But it's quite a personal and beautiful luxury shopping experience, you know. And even if people come away having tried some pieces on and feeling, wow, I feel gorgeous, then I feel like we've achieved something. And we've achieved something for that person to at least remember feeling like a goddess for the day. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Maria. You've been a brilliant guest on the show. Thank you. And I will hopefully come and visit you when uh, when I'm when I'm out of lockdown. When we're allowed, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, exactly. Lovely. That would be great. Thank you very much. Lovely to speak to you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday, plus there's bonus episodes occasionally. So make sure you subscribe in your favourite podcast app. And if you're looking to find British-made brands or UK manufacturers, check out the directory on the Make It British website at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash directory. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.